If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Continuing our reading out of Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones in which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of all the sons of Israel. All Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then, afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Sends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again before we hear from him this morning. Lord God, we ask now that you would arrest our attention You give us ears to hear your glorious truth to be unfolded here through this glorious text. And please enable me to communicate it by the power of your spirit. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we're continuing um, our series in the book of Joshua as we come to the end of chapter 8. A text where the gospel trickles down to us. Uniquely tucked away in this historical narrative. As we shall see towards the end of the message. Along with um, certain principles of corporate worship that apply to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ to this day. So as we move through it, I'll point those out, just principles that are applicable to his church to this day. First, the setting, the context. Uh, The people of Israel at long last have entered into the promised land, They have won two overwhelming victories thus far. One at Jericho where the walls fell down flat. They didn't fall in, they didn't fall out, they fell down flat. Supernatural, powerful work of Almighty God conquering Jericho, destroying everyone within that city. And then came the battle at Ai after their second attempt. Because at first came a shocking defeat from Ai due to sin within the camp of Israel. When Achan, 
the troubler of Israel. Achan's name means man of trouble. When he saw with his eyes and coveted with his heart and then took with his hands God's ban on Jericho, spoils of war, gold, silver, and an ornate robe from Shinar, which is a Babylonian robe, which was really just a pagan status symbol. He took those things and he buried them in his tent, which was a direct violation of God's ban of Jericho. The cancer of covetousness consumed Achan. Having lost proper sight of God's goodness, graciousness, and provision. That's one of the first principles, by the way, of serpent theology, which originated in the Garden of Eden. And that is that the tempter comes and he places emphasis on the restriction imposed by God rather than on the riches that he has lavished upon his people. And because of our first parent's sin, otherwise known as original sin, we all bear the consequence, and that is the consequence of a sin nature. You're born with a sin nature. Nobody has to teach these children how to sin. Witness, moms and dads. They already know how to do it. I came out never having been taught how to sin. So we bear the sin nature. And here, Joshua chapter 8, we saw in chapter 7, because of one man's sin, God holds all of Israel accountable and they lose the first battle at Ai. Defeat. The takeaway lesson there was that contentment, again, contentment with God's goodness is an antidote against apostasy. Apostasy is to, to turn your back out of once professed faith. It's the great antidote. Contentment with God's goodness. So here then, as a theocracy... Um, Israel, ancient Israel, was a nation set apart unto the Lord in covenant with Yahweh, the one true and mighty God, which makes Achan's sin a capital crime. A capital crime. This is treason against God, against the nation, and against the people of that nation, the consequence of which was death. A death sentence. So once the troubler of Israel was identified and put to death and all of his possessions destroyed, we read in chapter 7 and verse 26 that God's anger was turned aside and the curse was lifted from the nation. And then we saw last time that the God of new beginnings, chapter 8 and verse 1, is the one who gives grace. And he tells Joshua not to fear, and not to be dismayed. I'm still with you. And then he says in verse 1, look back, chapter 8, verse 1, take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his 
land. And indeed, it all came to pass. Victory the second time at Ai. Now, after the conquest here in Ai, there's still much to be done, amen? They've just entered in to the promised land. There are many battles to be fought as commanded by God. This land is theirs because it's his. Notice, however, that it is very significant here and now in the midst of a busy life and campaign, to say the least, <laughs> that Joshua pauses to build an altar to the Lord God of Israel. Question, does anyone claim to be too busy to worship God? Obviously not you because you're here. Anyone at home watching, and perhaps you've become very comfortable in your homes, just watching church on TV. Question, are you too busy to worship God as you're called to worship, which is corporately? They didn't think so. So here, after this record of ancient warfare, is the record of worship. We're given details of battle, followed now by details for worship, for devotion. Two things that go hand in hand in the Christian life. Amen? Hand in hand. Called as we are to be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, we worship, we battle, and we worship. We go out and we battle with the truth. We battle against spiritual warfare. That's, that's exhausting enough, amen? And then we come and we worship again. Battle, worship, battle, worship. Enlisted as we are under the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to take up the whole armor of God so that we can stand and resist what? The wiles of the devil, the tricks of the devil, to stand firm and we put it on for his glory. Battle, worship, battle, worship. And here we're reminded again that our worship goes hand in hand with our service for him. And again, I'll point out these principles as we work our way through the text. So notice now in verse 30, then Joshua, then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. So as this amazing episode unfolds, uh, we need con to consider um, the command of Moses to the people before they entered in, before he died and before they entered in to the promised land. Um, this is why they were still camped at Moab. So if you look there at Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 and 5. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones as I'm commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. Okay, that's the, that's the command given by Moses, the servant of the Lord, before they ever entered in. So here now, 
Joshua follows through. They have traveled 20 plus miles north of Ai into the valley of, key word of the day, Shechem. Shechem was a city in the valley with Mount Ebal on one side, Mount Gerizim on the other. So the time has come for them to fulfill the words of Moses and renew the covenant. To renew the covenant. So they've been joined, notice, the warriors of Israel have been joined now uh, with the women and children who've been at their base camp in Gilgal. Now they've all come together. They've traveled 20 plus miles northward to Shechem. And Shechem, word of the day, is not a random place selected by Joshua, but is rooted in their family history as the covenant people of the one true God, Yahweh. Remember, Shechem was where Abraham first received the promise of the Holy Land some 600 years before. Look at it. Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moray. Now, the Canaanite was then in the land. Hey, did you, see, did you hear that? The Canaanites have been there for a long time. Whose land is it? God's land. When will they receive the land? When the sin of the Amorites is full. When the iniquities of the Amorites is full, which would take over 400 years, then you will enter the land, and here they are. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it was in Shechem that Jacob returned, having been in exile on the run from his brother Esau. Remember, he was fearing for his life. And he returned to Shechem, Genesis 33. And then Shechem became Jacob's family homeland, Genesis 37. So Shechem was the city that any Israelite was, would associate with the promised land. And here they are. Situated again between Mount Ebal and in Mount Gerizim, which would make for a great natural amphitheater as they enter in. And we're told that it is now important that they come aside after this great victory, victory in Jericho, victory in Ai, they now pause to worship publicly. To worship in what way? Publicly. First applicable point we see is the principle that the church of Jesus Christ is to engage in public worship. Public worship. God's people are to make a public statement to the world in which we live of God's grace, unmerited favor, his grace towards us, and our responsive commitment to him. That's why we gather. Grace, response, worship. <laughs> Unmerited favor, response, worship, publicly. That's one of the tasks of the church, to do this. To make clear to unbelievers around us that 
We worship the one true living God of grace who saves sinners like us. Amen? Who saves sinners. Verse 30, notice it was then, or the ESV has it, I think, at this time. At that time, that is having taken Ai at that time, Joshua build, built an altar after the victory. After. See, we, we gather, beloved, and as we gather, we are considering what is behind us, and that is victory that has been won for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we also look forward to the ultimate victory, which is what? Glory. Glory. We still battle, okay? Israel... They, they look behind them and they worship God. These, these, these victories at Jericho and Ai, they're also looking ahead to the further conquest and the dividing of the land given to them by God. So they pause here. Um, at this time, they build an altar and they engage in, in public corporate worship. You know what they're doing here with this stone altar? They're staking their claim on the land. Staking their, it's God's claim, actually. They're staking claim to the land. This is his land. So to build an altar is a bold statement. It is an audacious declaration that says, mine. Bold. This is ours. Take a peek ahead at chapter 9. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, when they heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Notice when they heard of it. Some believe that the it, when they heard of it, is in reference to the conquest at Ai. But I, I think it seems more natural that the it refers to building this altar. And once they built the altar, then they gathered together, which again is like staking claim to the land. Ours, says the Lord. Which is to say, we have a right to it. It belongs to us, says the Lord. One commentator, he says this, and I quote, The Canaanite rulers recognized that Israel is declaring international superiority for itself and universal sovereignty for its God. The recalcitrant kings of the land declare war being unwilling to submit to the Lord's authority, end of quote. You know what that's reminiscent of? One particular psalm, psalm, psalm two. Look at it, psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers 
take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. We'll have nothing to do with this God. That's what they say. That's perhaps what you once said. What I once said. As for me, verse 6, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What else do we read about man's rebellion in Psalm 2? How does God respond to it in heaven? He sits in heaven and laughs. He doesn't even get up off his throne. Finite men thinking that they can fight against God. So here we see an illustration of that, Psalm 2. Here in Joshua 9, verses 1 and 2, we see an illustration of Psalm 2. God's people are building an altar. They're staking a claim to the land because the Lord has given them this land. They're going to now publicly worship God. And here, the surrounding nations are offended, and they conspire together to fight against God's people. Have things changed? No. It'll be this way to the end. So don't lose heart. Don't think this is something unique to you or to us in our day. Amen? You know, building Christian sanctuaries, buildings to worship the Lord, holding public worship as we are here in Pacific Hope Church on Afton Road bears witness to the neighborhood, the community, and the city that this belongs to Christ. Everything belongs to Christ. To quote Abraham Kuyper once again, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. Amen? Glad for that? Whether they realize it or not, he says it's all mine. So in verse 31, notice, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, okay, they are to build an altar of uncut stones, which no man has wielded an iron tool. Okay, this is just simply the use of uncut field stones for this altar commanded by God. Now, he commanded this way back in Exodus. He said this in Exodus 20 and verse 25. If you make an altar of stone for me, says the Lord, you shall not build of it out of cut stones. If you wield your tool on it, you carve designs in it, you've profaned it. You've profaned it. A simple stone altar was the command not to be decorated, not to be designed by human hands. In other words, the Lord says, do not attempt to make them, these stones, more decorative. Do not add your own workmanship. Why? Why? So that man would never, ever think that any human work is to be associated with God's glorious provision. Lest sinners think, Look at the beauty of my carving of this stone. Look at how intricate it is. This is my part. My part. Don't carve in it. 
so as never to think that anything brought to this altar makes the sacrifice which will be burnt on top of it acceptable. In other words, no man contributes anything to his salvation. Nothing. Only God's lamb does. It will be burnt upon the altar of field stones uncut. In other words, God will not allow flesh, any flesh, any human flesh to glory in his presence. You played no part in your salvation. It's not, well, God provided the grace and I provided the faith. Wrong. Faith is a gift. The only thing that you and I provided towards our salvation is your sin. That's it. That's it. Rejoice in that. Another principle that we see here is that worship, corporate worship, is to bear witness to God's grace. Unmerited favor. It is not what we do. It is not what we work. It's not the intricate design carved into some stone. Verse 31b. And they offered burnt offerings on it. On what? And the altar of uncut stones. To the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. We'll get to all that towards the end of the, of the message. So it, it is not the creativity ever of man-made religion that provides sinners forgiveness. There's all kinds of man-made religions out there, amen? So it's, it's man's attempt to, you know, God does a little, little, I'll do a little, you know, and I have to earn my way. No, wrong. Only the blood on the altar saves, period. Blood of the lamb. Gift. Another applicable point, verse 31 um, cor uh, corporate worship is to be regulated by God's word as he has commanded. He regulates worship. He prescribes what worship is to be. He prescribes how he will be worshiped. Friends, he tells us what he wants. What do we do when we gather together? We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Right? Worship songs that, that declare his name, his work, and his worth. We read scripture. We sing scripture. We pray according to scripture. That's what he's prescribed, which means we do not have the freedom to make up ways that we think will be nice, novel, or exciting when we worship God the way we want. Amen? He prescribes it. Or perhaps we'll do things that will attract unbelievers. Well, there's a brilliant idea. Wrong. He says no. God will gather unbelievers to himself and turn them into believers according to his sovereign time frame. We don't need to try to help him along. Amen? So he says, you will worship me this way. Worship cannot and will not, shall not be innovative and we cannot be innovative with our doctrine and our worship. Why? Because the truth has already been given to us. 
Revelation has already come down to us in one name, one person, one event, one revelation, and that is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will worship him the way he tells you to worship him. We see that here in Shechem. Friends, we don't come into this house, this place of worship, any more than Israel traveled to Shechem to make covenant with the Lord. That's what they're doing on different terms. They were there to, to renew the original covenant on God's terms. The covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as I pointed out earlier, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ by way of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So, in other words, our faith has been revealed to us. It's been gifted to us by God, and it concerns his work. It's his covenant, it's his work, and no human being ought to try and alter it. Alter, A-L-T-E-R. Don't A-L-T-E-E-R, the A-L-T-A-R. <laughs> Amen? Don't alter the altar. Human beings, finite sinners saved by grace. Amen? We offer to God what he calls for. So no one worships God with what they think is unique or cute. That makes me feel good. I often give a reminder to visitors if they're checking out Pacific Hope Church. Just a reminder, this is not about you. Worship's not about you. Worship's not about me. It's about him. So you never want to leave a church and say, I didn't get much out of worship. If you didn't get much out of worship, then you're there for the wrong reason because it's not for you. Worship is to come from you to him. Verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. In the presence of the sons of Israel, these stones were covered with lime, right? We read that in Deuteronomy 27. So they could write the law on them. Verse 4, Deuteronomy 27. So after the sacrifice, once the sacrifice is burned, then they're reminded how. They are to live from the scriptures. Verse 33, all of Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood from Mount Gerizim and half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. And again, that instruction it's in Deuteronomy 27. So again, there's a natural amphitheater in that part of the land. Um, and it's said that a human voice can be heard at a great distance in between those two mounts. So it's a perfect scenario here as they're in Shechem. So notice both the Hebrew natives and the non-Jewish strangers, i.e. Rahab, the prostitute, who God saved along with her family, they'd be some of the strangers, together, joined together in public corporate worship in this commemoration. 
Another applicable point is the principle that the church of Jesus Christ displays unity in her worship. Unity. Obviously, there is to be no segregation according to race or nationality when God's people who are in covenant with him, we're in the new covenant together when they join to worship. No segregation. Also, notice there's to be no segregation according to office. Notice that the representatives of the people worship with the people. You don't see some guy behind us in a silly-looking suit and some goofy-looking hat sitting on a throne that's elevated, do you? Do you? No. The only reason that this pulpit is raised above the people is because it represents the word that comes down to the people. And it came down to me all week first. And I'm just the mouthpiece that brings it now, amen? The raised pulpit comes from Nehemiah 8. They built a wooden platform and a pulpit above the people so that the word came down to the people, amen? But the leaders of the church join together with the other men, women, children, you have elders, you have deacons, because this is the body of Christ joined together in corporate worship, unified. Unified. And they all gathered around the Ark of the Covenant, the Old Testament sign and symbol of God's holy presence with his people. Pause for a moment. Um, Obviously, I think we all know that God is ever-present everywhere. Amen? However, he's uniquely present, especially present, when his people join together corporately. Here, that sign was the Ark of the Covenant, and the same holds true for us. He's present wherever we go, but he's uniquely present here as his people gather together under his word. And they gathered around the word of God just as we do to this day. Verse 34. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So the reading of God's word is a vital aspect of church life. And friends, oh, how neglected that is to this day. I hear it all the time. People go to places called church. They they barely even read the word, let alone preach from it. They're watching movie clips and telling stories and entertaining people. You gather around the word. We read it, we sing it, we preach it, we pray it. As God's people are unified, gathered together corporately in public worship. We see that right here in the Old Testament. And we preach the whole counsel. Notice the blessing and the curse. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 27. I don't have these for you, but you can just turn there. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 14. 
The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, verse 15, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people together say what? Amen, preacher. Amen. Cursed is the one who dishonors his father and mother. Amen, say the people. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor, neighbor's boundary mark. That's to, basically just to steal land. The people say, amen. Cursed is the one who moves the, uh, the, the, the marker. Cursed is the one who misleads a blind person on the road. Cursed are those who distort justice. And cursed are those who lie with his father's wife. And then you have all of these other you know, sexual perversions. And it's amen, amen, amen. Chapter 28. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, he says to Israel, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Verse 3, blessed you shall be in the city, blessed you shall be in the country, blessed shall the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and offspring of your beasts, and so on. Blessing, curses were declared to the people. In the preaching, you're to preach the bad news and the good news. There's no good news, by the way, unless you know the bad, amen? How can it be good news if you don't know the bad news? How can you know the blessings if you don't understand the curses? The whole counsel of God. Now, as regards Old Covenant Israel, friends, it was not as though membership within that covenant community guaranteed an absolute right to the promised land, whether or not you show yourselves loyal to Yahweh or not. After all, what happened to the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt? They all died in the wilderness. All but two. Joshua was one. All but two. That, while that generation... The wandering generation for 40 years in the wilderness um, had their own set of struggles. Those struggles led to constant complaining, whining, and there they died. This new generation that enters into Canaan, this next generation, they'll have even more challenging and difficult challenges, more challenging and difficult struggles, rather, ahead of them than did the first generation. Although they will not be tempted to complain about the manna that God provided, although they'll complain and want meat as they did, not will, but did, God said, you want meat? Remember this? I'll give you meat. I'll bring so much quail in that you'll be eating it till it comes out your noses, which is really gross. <laughs> right? You remember the account? They won't have to deal with complaining about manna because manna has ceased. So this new generation of Israelites are going to have to go about working the land, building their homes. They're going to have to raise and disciple their children and remain faithful to Yahweh in a world that is surrounded by the temptation of paganism. Surrounded by unbelieving people. Israel, the first generation, didn't have to deal with that. This generation will. 
But Israel's faith, as we know, would fade. Their faith will fail. The Lord will punish her and then by his spirit call her back to himself and thus the reason that they renew the covenant again and again and again. See the picture here? This is what they're about to face. So unlike their parents, this new generation that enters with great faith, we see it. They enter with great faith. Their children nevertheless will grow up And they will struggle to remain faithful to Yahweh time and time again. And most of them will err in one of two directions. One group will stress zeal toward Yahweh, especially through outward conformity to the law, adding rules upon rules so as appear so as to appear to be zealous and holy that's a big bozo no no right there that's the legalist impulse legalism is ugly because eventually that method and that mode will produce a group called what the pharisees The Pharisees. We need more rules, they'll say, to control um, sinful human behavior. So we need to get serious about obeying the rules. Doesn't work. The other group will go in the opposite direction. And they'll say, yep, let's worship Yahweh, the one true God, but let's add to the covenant various pagan practices and let us work to make everybody happy. God's covenant people and unbelievers. Don't we want unbelievers to come and feel good about themselves? Is anything new? Anything new under the sun? No, that's what they, the the two directions they went in, both erroneous, both dangerous. It's kind of like the modern megachurch today. Let's add some of our own ways, some of our own methods to make everybody happy. Applicable point, we find ourselves in the exact same situation. Okay, we ask ourselves, how do we live day-to-day in the business world? How do we live day-to-day raising our families and practicing our faith surrounded by pagans who hate the truth? How do we do it? The, The people who despise the dogma and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they know that we won't bow to their political correct, politically correct inventions and religions. That's what we're faced with. So the temptation comes, well, just deny Christ. Well, if you don't want to go that far, you don't want to straight up deny Christ, then just synchronize Christianity is merely one way that leads to God. And then they'll embrace us. Then the pressure will be off. The pressure of paganism. What do we say to that? Let it never be. Friends, every generation must confirm faith in Christ alone. Every generation. Far too often, 
One generation believes the gospel and they fight for the gospel. The next generation haphazardly assumes the gospel and then the generation after that straight up denies the gospel. Israel faced this time and time again. Thus the reason, all that to say, thus the importance of preaching both blessing and curse. The whole counsel of God. Because there is no new way. There is no different way. There is no my way. There is no to me God is like kind of way. If your God, if your Jesus doesn't align with his word, then you've got another Jesus. The false teachers came into Corinth preaching what? Another gospel and another Jesus. Heresy. Therefore, preach the blessing and the cursings. Here we are. Look at Jeremiah 6, verse 16. We don't pave our own paths. Our opening reading this morning. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. And how did the people respond? Look at it. But they said, we will not walk in it. We'll walk in our way. Blessing and cursing must be proclaimed. The whole counsel of God. The, The ancient paths that are established by God. And you know, our elders and deacons, we cite that verse probably, what, gentlemen, twice a year? Did I go to that text, Jeremiah 6? Twice a year to remind ourselves to stay the course, the ancient paths. And again, this is the path that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every believer is going to feel the pull as this next generation of Israel will. They're going to feel the tug, as Jesus said, to go the easy way, to take the broad road, to enter through the wide gate. Because how many go that way, Jesus said? Many. Many. And what does it lead to? Destruction. It's the ancient path paved out by God himself that leads to the straight way, the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ. See, Israel was tempted, they succumbed to it, but we must not. So sadly, when the Lord's ancient paths are forsaken, those same two tendencies will show up with us. We'll either go the way of the legalist or the way of the pagan. If you go the way of the legalist, all you'll have is a church filled with Pharisees. Disgusting. If you go the other way, you'll have a church filled with pagans, unregenerate people. So we have to stay the course of the ancient paths. Amen? In other words, we must maintain the locus of our focus, which is Jesus Christ, because our hope is not in some ability to follow a list of rules. Amen? Our hope is to not to go the way of an unbelieving world. We maintain the locus of our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived up, lived out the law, upheld the law, and provides righteousness that we can never obtain on our own. 
and he lays it to our account. Bearing the curses upon himself. In other words, we focus on the what? The gospel, which we're about to see. Tucked away in this glorious passage. So I want to conclude now with the location of this covenant renewal, with the location of this corporate public worship service. Now, place names in Scripture, okay, names of places in Scripture are very important. They're never by way of coincidence because God works in time, space, and place throughout history. And right here, we see the gospel shown to us and the cross of Jesus Christ foreshadowed for us right here in Shechem that was in between Mount Ebal and, and Mount Gerizim. It's only been like 45 minutes. <laughs> All right. So again, situated between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessing. Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. Where was Joshua told to build this altar? Perhaps you say, well, on the Mount of Blessing, of course. Right? No, wrong. Build the altar on the Mount of Cursing. Look at Deuteronomy 11, verse 29. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Look at Deuteronomy 27, verse 4. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, these stones as I'm commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. They're called to rejoice there on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. Why? Because the picture that is set before them is that of an atoning sacrifice. An atoning sacrifice. What's on the altar? What's on the stone altar? A sacrifice. An animal. It is there on the mount of law-breaking, on the mount of cursing, that comes the hope of redemption. The mount of cursing. This is, this is an altar for lawbreakers. You catch that? The Mount of Cursing, the, 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 the altar for lawbreakers. Right there where the people are to commemorate the curses for lawbreaking, they're called to build the altar. Upon which a sacrifice is provided. A lamb slain for sinners. So Joshua made two different offerings on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, a burnt offering and a peace offering. 
burnt offering is where the animal was com completely consumed upon the altar by flames. A picture of what the sinner deserves. The sinner deserves to be completely burnt. Consumed by God's fire. For our God is a consuming fire. Holy, righteous, pure. And when they burned those offerings, we're told that God received it as a sweet-smelling what? Aroma. Sweet-smelling aroma. So these burnt offerings were designed under the old covenant to temporarily atone for sin, pointing forward to the lamb of all lambs, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there was the peace offering, otherwise known as the fellowship offering. This one was not to be fully consumed upon the fire. They did not consume the entire animal atop of those flames. The ones who offered the animal were also able to partake as a meal offering, the, 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 remainder, the remaining animal on top of the fire. A graphic illustration of restored fellowship with God. Peace offering. Burnt offering, peace offering, slaughter, fellowship, sacrifice, fellowship, restoration. It's a picture of the peace that we have with God because of the sacrifice he provides. Who provides the sacrifice? He provides the sacrifice. He calls for the sacrifice. This is how you shall worship me. So in the place of cursing, there was redemption for sinners, for lawbreakers. Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink. He contrasts Joshua 7 with Joshua 8. And he notes, now follow this. He notes that in chapter 7, there's a dead body under a pile of stones because of sin. Who was that? Achan. In chapter 8, we have an accepted sacrifice on top of a pile of stones in order to take away sins. The burnt offering. Christ crucified. Paul said, I, I came here, you know, you bunch of rhetoricians, you bunch of polished speakers, bunch of false teachers that have come into Corinth and Corinth, you've all bought into it. When I came to you, I came preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified, the burnt offering. The peace offering. God who provides peace through the sacrifice of his son for all, for all who will believe. Peace. Now, the peace offering foreshadows a meal yet to come at this point in history when Jesus himself sits down on that last night before he was crucified with his disciples in the upper room to have the last what? Supper. What supper? Last. 
Any need for Passover meals anymore? No, that was the last one. Why? Because the Passover lamb was sitting at the head of the table. You don't read about a lamb there because he's talking, he's speaking. Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Take and drink, this is my blood shed for you. New covenant, all fulfilled. So when we come to the cross, what do we see? Mount Calvary, the mount of what? Cursing. The mount of cursing. He was cursed there, providing redemption for us. Christ was cursed. We received the blessing. He's the substitute. We gain fellowship with God once again because peace has been provided by way of the cross. Cross. You're justified. Vertically, you're made right with God. Horizontally, all of your sins are forgiven as far as the east it East is from the west. And again, when you get on a jet plane or a rocket and you head east, east and west never meet. If you go north, you hit the North Pole, you're going south. East and west never meet. So your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west through this atoning sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides peace with God. Without him, you're at enmity with God. This also points forward, this kind of feast, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, of which all who are in Christ will participate when he returns again. The marriage supper of the Lamb, who bore the wrath of God, the cursing of God in our place. We have peace with him, and we'll get to celebrate together the marriage supper of the Lamb when he returns in glory. Amen? which means you are forgiven and in God's sight, perfect. As I close up with Hebrews, our reading from this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, look at it. Verse 14, for by one offering, how many? One offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember, what? No more. It's a done deal. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen? We don't sacrifice sheep and burn them on altars anymore because Christ quenched God's wrath on the cross for you. Done. This ceremony foreshadows that glorious work. The gospel right there in the, in the, in the town called what? Shechem, <laughs> in between Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, and Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. He's cursed. He was cursed. We're blessed. 
So here Joshua comes to the Mount of Cursing. He builds an altar. He sacrifices there. As the smoke ascends, it declares the gospel of God's grace to the whole nation. And it's only after gospel grace is given to the people that he reads the word of the law. Verse 34. Then afterward, he read all the works of the law. Do you want to read the work of the law? And try to apply it before you realize that you're forgiven and atoned for? No, that leads to legalism. That's the list on the wall. Just do this. Try hard. Forget that. Understand that he was cursed and you're blessed. Now out of gratitude, we want to obey the word. Amen? You can't earn anything from it or buy it. But out of gratitude, we live in a manner worthy of the the call. And that's his way. So, friends, we will keep ourselves from the dangers of both legalism and paganism only by keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the curse, setting us free, blessing us, granting us fellowship with God through Christ, our one and only mediator, because now you have peace with God. Foreshadowed here in Gerizim. So, friends, may we never grow weary of the gospel. Amen? May we never take for granted, young people, the gospel. Amen, children? Your faith must be your own. You can't live off your parents' faith. You must embrace Christ. And if you're here and you're not a believer today, and you're hearing this glorious good news, regardless of your sins of the past, if you'll flee to Christ, the one who bore the curse, and you embrace him by faith, Repent of your rebellion, repent of your unbelief, and you too, guaranteed, shall be saved, granted peace with God through the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of Almighty God. And you'll never taste the curse, but only the blessing. It doesn't mean that life will all of a sudden become easy. Matter of fact, become more difficult. Why? Because you're always fighting against paganism and or legalism. (laughs) Amen? Amen? Lord, we do thank you for the gospel of grace um, shown to us here um, years and years before the greater Joshua entered this world to uphold your law, to bear your curse, to set us free and to bless us. So, Lord, I ask that you'll bless this, your glorious word, to the hearts of your people. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.